Daniel is one of those books in the scriptures that you can kind of relate to in life in the sense of, have you ever felt like no matter what you do, people just don't believe you? It's just, just not good enough? And that's kind of the way we who believe that the scriptures are the word of God in the sense of when either archaeology or science or some field of learning has not caught up to the scriptures. They say, oh, the Bible is wrong because see, this or that didn't happen. One of the classics is, is for many, many years, everybody thought that the Bible was wrong because there was no such thing as Hittites and the Hittite empire and people like uh, people serving in David's uh, services who've been a Hittite, and they just said, oh, it, it just can't be. The scriptures are wrong. And then lo and behold, archaeology finds the kingdom of the Hittites, and there are libraries full of information about the Hittite empire. Well, in the converse kind of sense of that, People think that Daniel was written after Daniel was alive because the word of God is too correct, too specific. And there's no way that anyone could know what's going to happen in the future. And therefore, it had to be written after the fact. The problem is, it is true. No one can know the future but God. And God can communicate to the future to whomever he wishes and desires. And he communicated that to Daniel. Now, kind of the unfortunate aspect of it is while he communicates what's going to happen to Daniel in the future, which is now for us, much of what we're going to see in the 11th chapter is the past. Next week, and we're going to take a look at the 11th chapter that's still yet to be. And it was, it's with such specificity that, again, people think, well, it had to have been written after the fact. But by reading the scriptures and getting a general sense of not only what they specifically say, but oftentimes when we read quickly past it, uh, we don't take into account. And so there are times when people will have happen in their lives some difficulty, some uh, either persecution or sickness or illness or, or financial problem, whatever the case may be. And we quickly think, well, why would God let that happen? And isn't, isn't God's primary function for me to be happy. And that, and that, and in essence, God lives for me to be happy. And when these things happen, I'm not happy. Why would God allow those things to happen? Or maybe even predetermine that they happen. Well, when we read the scriptures specifically, and when we read like in this sense, there are times all too often that God's people are persecuted, that God's people live under the yoke 
of slavery and the powers of other nations. And that's what, in essence, the angel is going to communicate with Daniel. And so uh, we often, again, get to be egocentric. And so when we look at the scriptures, we kind of take of a point of reference of where we are. And so in chapter 11, we're going to see, uh, talk about the king of the north and the king of the south. And sometimes we think that that's difficult to understand because northware, southware, whatever. Let me give you a big clue. God usually is referencing things based on the Holy Land, where he has determined his people are to live. So things north of Israel is north. Things south of Israel is south. And so that will help you somewhat understand some of the things that are happening. Now, unfortunately, like I said, if, if, as we read this, we sometimes just kind of read and go, okay, that's interesting history lessons. But what is going to be communicated here is that Israel is placed in a particular geographical location that becomes not only a trade route, but also a route for various powers to seek additional power. And so we're going to see that the kings of the north will come and fight the kings of the south. Well, in order to do that, or the kings of the south will come and fight the kings of the north. In order to do that, they got to go through Israel, which means there are going to be occupying armies going through Israel or going back through Israel. And whoever wins these battles are the ones who are in essence going to control the land for a period of time. So unfortunately, what the angel is saying is, yeah, right now, the people of Israel, of God's people are going back to Israel, but things are still going to be difficult until the Messiah comes finally. And so in chapter 11, it starts off with verse one. It says this, in the first year of Darius, the Mede, I, again, being this angelic messenger, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Now, again, we read that and we kind of forget the situation is, is that the first year, that's when the decree was issued for the people to be able to go back and start building and whatever. And so just as we took a look at last week, how there is a spiritual battle going, the angel is saying, I'm there helping and encouraging him to do the thing that God had called him to do, which was to issue that decree. So he's there as an encouragement and a protection for him. And I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise and will, he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out into the four points of the compass. Though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. And so the angel starts off this and saying, there's going to be, in essence, four more rulers in 
Persia. This last one is going to be powerful. And um, if you've seen the movie 300 or whatever, you kind of have an idea of Artaxerxes and how powerful and godlike he thought he was and whatever, and was convinced that with his mighty army, he could conquer Greece, only to find out he couldn't. And then Alexander the Great arises, and this is that one sentence saying, there's one who will rise and conquer and will be great, but he will not rule and his descendants will not rule for a long time, that it will be broken up into four corners. And as we've seen previously, there were four different generals who were parceled out. One received the, the north, one received the east, one received the west, one received the south. The scriptures at this point will kind of not talk about the kingdoms of the west, which would be the Greek Medo, the Greek empire of Macedon, nor will it talk about the further east kingdom. It will concentrate on two kingdoms, the one in the north and one in the south, because again, those are the ones who are going to be impacting the nation Israel. Those two kings were known as Seleucid, the north, and Ptolemy, the south. And so Alexander's child was killed. He had no, no one to rule. And so the four generals divided up the empire. And so the scripture says, that it will be divided up. Verse 5. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. And his dominion will be great dominion. Indeed, after some years they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will she re he remain with his power but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their mental uh, images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, will, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then after, and then later, will enter the realm of the king of the south, will return to his lone land. Now, what does that all say? Historically, this is kind of what happened. The king of the south sends his daughter to the king of the north to be, get married. There was only one little problem. The king of the north already had a wife. Her name was Laodice. But he set her aside in order to make this agreement. And usually that's one of the ways kingdoms figure out how not to fight each other is if they marry each other, then there's that sense of, so he sets her aside and marries Bernice. This gentleman's name is Antiochus II. And so they're married. Father-in-law dies. 
So he decides to get rid of Bernice. And Mary, again, Laodice. The first wife, who's now the third wife, isn't happy. So guess what she does? She poisons her husband. She kills Bernice and her kid. And then puts her brother in charge. One not of her descendants. So you see just how precise the word of God predicts these things. The other thing I want you to remember is how little things change. People and countries still try to do deals and get advantages and power and don't care who they step on in order to get that power. People are just like they've always been. And so after that, you go up. And so then verse 10 says this. And his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war upon his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will arise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. And when the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall. Yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will gain, will again rise a great multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Basically, this war that is going on between the north and the south will continue on through generations. After the first generals die, their children will go into power and they are in the family business. And the family business is trying to gain control and power over others. So, the king of the north and the king of the south keep fighting. But in, ultimately, at this point, the sons of the north are victorious. Now in those times, many will rise up the king of the south, and the violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Basically, what happens here is that there will be a a large portion of the Jews in Israel who will decide to side with the king of the north, get rid of the king of the south. And so they will side with the king of the north, thinking that that's for their benefit. Then the king of the north will come and cast up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troop, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. And he will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. So initially, the people of Israel who side with the king of the north think, okay, we are on the winning side. Except they exchange one occupier for a different occupier. 
And he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom and bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. So what happens is, well, it didn't work the first time. So if we marry the people back and forth, then we'll have peace and we'll have an agreement. The, the, the woman who is married this time, her name is Cleopatra. Not the Cleopatra that, that um, was made famous in the movies. Uh, you know, Cleopatra and Mark Antony. This is an earlier one. But her problem is she's not faithful to her husband. So it doesn't work. That's why she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his own, his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. So he's thwarted in his conquest and returns home only to be killed. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. So what happens here is he tries to raise, his story says this one tries to raise money because of all the wars and wars take money. And he takes some um, treasure out of a temple, not in Israel, in, an, in another land. The people don't take kindly to it and kill it. So um, sometimes tax collectors uh, don't do so well. And in his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. This is in history known as Antiochus IV. He's also called Antiochus Epiphanes. I don't like to use that word. That's how history describes him, because that's how he described himself. And Epiphanes means illustrious one because he thought he was pretty hot. The Jews use a slight variation of Epiphanes and I believe it's Epimenes, which means madman. So, you know, they would kind of tweak kind of how we would use certain words that sound alike and kind of change the meaning. That's what they would do. And so, but he doesn't, he doesn't come to power because he deserves it. He basically comes to power because he kills his brother. And then he initially is successful in campaigns because he, he comes in tranquility and peace and he makes agreements and everybody thinks, oh, how wonderful this guy is. Even so, he makes agreements with the Jews to determine who is going to be the chief priest which ought to make him up and say, well, wait a minute. 
What is a king of the north, one who is Hellenized, have anything to do with deciding who should be the chief priest? But he makes that arrangement. Then when he's paid more money, he changes and gives it to somebody else. And he, this one, makes it his mission to Hellenize, to make the Greek influence over Israel. And he's partially successful, and there are those who kind of adopt the culture. Now, many hundreds of years later, a few hundred years later, in the New Testament, we'll kind of see the result of it. And that's why sometimes understanding a little bit of history will help us understand. So you know the two camps during, well, there's more than two camps, but the main two camps were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And everybody, and the reason that one of the big differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees was the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And so the, the classic thing is how you can know the difference is they don't believe in a resurrection, therefore they're sad, you see. So that's how you can remember. But they're also very Greek-oriented, which is interesting. They, were, they adopted much of the Greek culture. However, when it came to scriptures, they only thought that the first five books of Moses were only the ones that were, uh, had any authority. The rest were just words. And that's why when Jesus talked to them and they asked them the question about the man having all these wives and who will be the one and whatever, thinking, aha, see, we can show you that there is no resurrection. Jesus goes right to the, to the Old Testament, to the first five books, and says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. So Jesus, understanding their limited view of the scriptures, hit them where they were. But again, that was where they were adopting the Greek culture. And that was where Antiochus IV, emphasis was to change Israel to be Greek. Kind of like today, where those are seeking to make we who are believers no different than the rest of the culture. You have a right to believe whatever you want to believe. Just don't say anything. Don't, Don't practice your religion. Just have your faith and just keep the culture the culture. And so things are no different. So they were persecuted for being Jewish. So in his place, a despicable person will rise whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered and also prince of the covenant. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest part of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. And he will distribute plunder, booty and possessions among them and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. So again, he has this army, but it's not a massive army. 
But he's successful because he bribes and he cajoles and he makes agreements. But he accomplishes things that not only of his fathers could do. Again, he has great influence in making Israel more Greek. And he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army so that the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand for schemes will be devised against him. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him and his army will overflow. But many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his own land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant and he will take action and return to his own land. What it's saying is after he was attempted to to defeat Egypt, the, the Ptolemies, the kings of the south, he's unsuccessful. One of the reasons he's unsuccessful is that, as we will see, well, I'll go on and well, at the appointed time he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before, for ships of Kittim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and will return and be come enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action so that he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up an abomination of desolation. And by smooth words he will turn to godless those who act wickedly towards the covenant but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. So what happens is that this Antiochus IV goes again to Egypt. But the Romans join the side of Egypt and stop him. So much so that it is said that, that a Roman admiral basically captures him and draws a circle around him and basically says, you've got two choices. You want out of the circle. You've got to pledge tribute and loyalty to Rome. And if you don't, you're not leaving the circle, at least alive. So he pledges tribute to save his own skin. But, you know, a person who thinks he's God takes that really hard. And so when he heads back home, he's enraged and he takes it out on Israel. And he basically sets up and talks about the, the desecration. He goes into the temple and puts an image, a statue of Zeus 
and sacrifices a pig at the altar. Now you can imagine that those who take God seriously find that very, very offensive. And so they fight against him. It is said that some 80,000 Jews die at his hands. Another 40,000 are made slaves, and another 40,000 are sent into captivity. But it says that there are those who basically side with him who are in Israel. They don't have understanding, but the ones who have understanding, they will fight. And as a result, some will join in hypocrisy and others won't. Notice it says, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. You see, at this point, it may even seem that the forces of evil are winning until God says it's enough. Next week, we're going to take a look at another one who thinks that he's God. We call him the Antichrist, or I've been calling him the Anti-Messiah. And we're going to see some of what he is and is predicted. But again, it is still an appointed time. And so the lesson, lessons from these chapters are this. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. It's going to seek its own power. It's going to seek its own glory. And it's going to seek to, to oppress anybody else. Especially those who take a stand for God. But it doesn't mean that God is not in control. It doesn't mean that God isn't sovereign. As a matter of fact, God is writing what is going to happen before it's happened. So that those who are going to live through this understand that this doesn't take God by surprise. He's also telling them that they're going to be purged and refined and pure. It's no wonder when Paul writes, he goes, and Peter writes, and others who say, count it all joy when you're persecuted. Even Jesus says, count it all joy when they persecute you for my name's sake. For you are blessed. You see, we kind of like the comfy Christian role, which is I get blessings and wonders and miracles and all these great things happen. Thinking that's a blessed life. And yet the scripture seemed to seem those were persecuted for his name will receive honor and blessing. So maybe those who are falling under the sword and captivity of this one who thinks he's a God, this one who, who so hates God that he destroys the ability to worship at the temple. And it may seem 
that those forces are winning. And there are times in the future it may seem that evil is winning, but only for as long as God says so. That is why it seems that this, there's a saying that says, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. God has outlined some things for the future that are now history for us to learn. That it's not always a bed of roses. Matter of fact, the bed of roses are a bunch of thorns. And so the title of this message is From Persia to Persecution. Oftentimes we think as soon as we get out of this situation, we get to go back to the Holy Land, everything will be fine. And God's saying, no, not yet. But there will come a time when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will in fact rule. God is just telling us what's going to happen in between time. And even though he may not tell us in the scriptural what's happening in America, because to a large extent it just doesn't matter, which kind of takes us aback. Wait a minute, but we're a superpower. Why doesn't it matter? Because God's talking about his people and his land. So kings of north and kings of south will fight and they will continue to do so. And if you look at the papers today, kind of the same thing is happening. There are those who seek to destruction of Israel from the south and from the north and all sides. But God is in control and God will limit what will happen. So much so that even Jesus says, when it gets really bad, so bad that maybe even the elect could fall away, God stops it. God knows exactly how much we can take. But guess what? With his grace, we can take a whole lot more than we think. And because of that, we should also understand persecution brings blessing. You may be rich today. Heaven is like real estate. It's location, location, location. Okay. Whatever the worst part of heaven is, is still better than any place else. But when Jesus talks in essence about as as I my kind of phraseology is. There is no U-Haul on the back of a hearse. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Put your, may your treasures be laid up in heaven. Persecution and handling it with grace is placing those treasures in heaven. And let's face it, would you be, rather be rich for 80 years or be rich for eternity. We need to get our eyes on the long 
And so kings of north and kings of south and presidents and prime ministers may do what they do. But God's letting us know. One day, he puts an end to it. And the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be here. And what a wonderful day that will be. He has set a limit on evil. And so, instead of focusing on the bad guys, let us focus on him. Instead of wondering what the bad guys are doing to win, let us focus on God who knows that he will set an appointed time and it's over. Even so, Lord, set it and come quickly. But he is, again, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we're going to sing, here is our king. There may be kings of the north, there may be kings of the south, and they may be seeking power and control. But we worship the one who is God. And all people said,